Welcome to episode 23 of the Countryline Songwriter Series, where you'll hear from some of the most successful artists and songwriters working in Nashville today. Country music is all about storytelling, and this is where you'll discover the stories from the people themselves of how they managed to find their way into such a competitive industry and rise to the top what motivates and inspires them, and what they've learnt along the way. A native of Rogers, Arkansas, Joe Nichols grew up watching his father play bass in a local country band. He himself played in a rock band during his teenage years, but soon came back to country. And after high school, took a night job as a DJ while supporting himself as a mechanic by day. He met producer Randy Edwards at the latter job, and under Edwards' guidance, he performed regularly and worked on his songwriting. He landed a record deal with Intersound and released his self-titled debut in 1996, naturally with Edwards producing. The single Six of One, Half a Dozen of the Other was a minor hit, but the album didn't sell particularly well. It did manage to earn Nichols a shot with Warner Brothers, but several label mergers left him out in the cold, and he worked a series of day jobs around Nashville while looking for a new deal. In 2000, he struck up a songwriting partnership with session guitarist Brent Rowan, and two years later he signed with Universal. His label debut, Man With A Memory, was released in 2002, and its lead single, the ballad The Impossible, went to number three on the country charts, also crossing over onto the pop top 30. In the wake of its success, his first album was then reissued under the title Six of One, Half a Dozen of the Other. Another single from Man With A Memory, Broken Heartsville, became his first number one country hit in early 2003, and it helped send the album into the country top ten. The accolades were suddenly flying fast and furious. The Academy of Country Music named Nichols its top new male vocalist. He garnered three Grammy nominations, and Billboard declared The Impossible the tenth most played song of 2003. Nichols and his band toured with Alan Jackson through August of that year and saw the single She Only Smokes When She Drinks enjoy similar success at Country Radio. In September, the buzz around Nichols continued with a Horizon New Artist Award nomination from the Country Music Association. His second album for Universal South, Revelation, and a holiday album, Traditional Christmas, were released in 2004, followed by the top 10 hit album, Three, in 2005. His next record, Real Things, hit shelves in 2007 and focused primarily on tender country ballads with a smattering of up-tempo jams. All Things New followed two years later in 2009. It proved to be another solid hit for Nichols, thanks to the singles Believers and Give Me That Girl. And Nichols followed it up in 2011 with the album It's All Good. It's All Good performed respectably. It debuted at 19 on the Billboard Country Charts, but it didn't generate a big hit single. And after its release, Nichols parted ways with Universal and signed with Redbow in October of 2012. A year later, he returned with the sunny, pop-orientated Crickets. Crickets generated two major country hits, Sunny and 75, and Yeah, which kept the album on the charts through 2014. In 2015, Nichols released Freaks Like Me, the single that was intended to be the first taste from his eighth solo album, but it didn't generate much attention, nor did its 2016 sequel Undone. Following these two singles, Nichols then reworked his eighth album, which was released as Never Gets Old in July of 2017. 
In 2019, he spoke about his life and career with myself, Stuart Bamford. The Countryline Songwriter Series with Joe Nichols. I was over in Nashville in June for CMA Fest and I came to your show at the Listening Room. And as someone who's literally listened to your music for years, I mean, I, I've grown up on it to not only see you perform in quite an intimate space but you know to hear these songs stripped down acoustically and then for you to talk about the songs in your career honestly it was probably the highlight of the trip fan club party in particular is kind of really cool because you kind of get to have a little bit of a deeper connection with everybody like you said a lot of people that are there you know kind of bought music throughout the years and more than just hearing the songs on the radio they kind of do want to know the stories behind the songs and i get to share those and usually get to talk about those stories so that's really fun for me too so next month, you're making your first trip over here. You've got some shows in England and then one here in Ireland at the INEC in Killarney on the 29th of September. The fan perception of country music, particularly here in Ireland, is still very much steeped in the more old-fashioned traditional sound, which, you know, you just do so well. So I'm telling you, you're going to have an absolute ball. You know, a lot of people say the people over there that are country fans are, are really big into the traditional side of country music, and that's great. Like you said, for me, because I'm kind of a throwback guy, I love the old stuff and love that old kind of retro sound, even with the new stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, a lot of times, you know, here in the States, you have to play songs that are hits on the radio. They got to be quick. They got to be fast, up tempo, new, fresh, go, go, go. And sometimes there's a lack of appreciation for great music from the past, you know, and, and certainly some of the, the deeper songs you know, kind of get overlooked a little bit for the flash. And so I'm looking forward to that very much. Artists come and go and a country today, the charts have become quite disposable, but we're still playing your songs from like 2002 as if they're brand new. Thank you. A dear friend of mine who actually produced lots of my music, Brett Rowan, he and I really share the same deal about country music. But one thing that matters most is timelessness. Those things seem to be what great careers are built on, and those things have more impact. Whether or not it's a big hit at the time or the most played song on the radio at the time really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's about making music that people will remember, you know, songs that seem like they're you know, timeless, that they hold up over time. But that sort of hit home for me then when I was at your fan club party in Nashville because when I heard your fans talk about how much these songs mean to them and like, you know, they've maybe been the song for the first dance at their wedding or, you know, it's when their child was born, stuff like that. The one thing that I appreciate the most is the connection with, with fans. You can't spend that. <laughs> you know, it's something that uh, it strikes a deeper chord in me. It's, it's great to be successful and it's great to, you know, play music you know, have a, a really fun gig, but the one thing that sticks with you, no matter what, is people that share stories, like you said, with their first dance or a wedding song or, you know, at a funeral even. You know, gosh, there's so many times I've heard, you know, people say, we played I'll Wait For You at my dad's funeral, stuff like that. Just, that sticks with you. Like I said, you can't spend that. And he said, I'll wait for you at heaven's gate. Oh, I don't care how long it takes And I'll tell St. Pete I can't come in without my love And my best friend Oh, this ain't nothing new Sweetheart, I'm 
Yes, I love you too Sweetheart I'll wait for you I mean, I have to mention this. I know you've opened for Garth Brooks before, but I saw that you recently opened for him in Denver in front of something like 85,000 people. Man, I'll tell you what. What a night. You know, when I look back over the past you know, 17 years since I first started touring, my first date was actually in August 4th, I think, in 2002. There's only a handful of things that stick out like, wow, that was a once-in-a-lifetime deal. That was one of them. During the show, I, I found myself stopping on purpose and just, soaking it in for three seconds, like listen to them singing the songs back to me. That was something that was truly special. Gosh, I can't thank him enough for being such a, a champion of, of mine to do that. From following your career and sort of reading a bit about you, and I think, again, this is why you've enjoyed such longevity, you seem like a real perfectionist. If that's true, these days, are you better, when you talk about maybe making a mistake on stage or whatever, have you got better at letting that go or do you still sort of dwell on that? I think nowadays I do have a better understanding of what I can control and what I can't. Uh-huh. And sometimes I let that probably go a little more than I did maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There was a time that I would just want to quit music if I had a couple of back-to-back shows that I didn't think were great. I'd be like, man, I'm just not good at this. I want to go home. (laughs) Nowadays, I kind of realize it for what it is and maybe just try to do better next time. Yeah. And your last full album, Never Gets Old, came out in 2017. Obviously, we got an EP last year of the same name. Personally, I'd love to know, is there a new album on the way? Are you working on one? Yeah, I'm actually in the studio tomorrow. I've got to finish up some vocals on the first four or five things. And um, it's so scary sometimes. I really want everything to be great, and I really don't want anybody to hear anything that I don't think is great. So I could work for months, if not a year or two, on four or six or ten things and get nowhere because I just don't feel like they're not good enough for anybody to hear, and I don't want anybody to just put these in the catalog. I I think I've really got some really cool things that are close to being 100%, you know, about 80% 80% there. One song that sticks out more than the rest is a song called Not Enough that I just played in the Grand Ole Opry last week. Wow. And really love the simplicity of the song. It's a ballad. If it's just captured just right in the studio, I think it'd be really special. Who do you share it with? Whose opinion? Who's the quality control? Is it yourself or do you share it with family and friends or what? Boy, um, the CEO, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that, that I feel like is ready to listen to beyond the studio besides just me and the producer and maybe a couple of people that are close to the music process. When it finally gets to a point where the vocal is close to being done or there's a mix that's close, I'll play it for Heather because she's a country fan, not really a trained ear looking for this particular type of thing in the song or this kind of lyric or does it fit radio or is it like this? I think she's just a country fan and she'll give that gut reaction honest opinion. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually it's brutally right. She'll start by kicking out of her shoes, losing the earring in her brain. Leave her jacket in the bathroom stall, drop a contact down the sink. 
Them pantyhose ain't gonna last too long If the DJ puts Bon Jovi on She might come home in a tablecloth Yeah, tequila makes her clothes fall off I remember reading um, a couple of years ago that one of your biggest hits, Tequila Makes Her Clothes Fall Off, there were people around you at the time telling you not to release it? I guess a couple of people thought it would be offensive to women. There were a couple of people that thought, oh, this is too gimmicky or bizarre out there. But man, I'll tell you what, when I came out of the studio, I thought, if we don't release this, it's a huge mistake. Because yeah. It's fun. The title is suggestive, but when you listen to the song, it's not offensive. It's just fun. Yeah. And uh, that's a classic example of you know, how in this business we can overthink things to the point of failure. That kind of paralysis by analysis. Let's make it as bland and as forgettable as possible in the effort to try to appeal to everyone instead of just trying to put out music that feels good, you know? Kind of along the same lines, what I really sort of remember from uh, that Nashville show in June was you speaking very honestly about um, recording Who Are You When I'm Not Looking, like three years before Blake Shelton released it, and how hard you pushed for the record label to release it. Yeah, and that was one of those singles that just got away from us that I thought was a huge mistake at the time. I remember playing that song for the first time in front of people live. We played this women's convention in Dallas, Texas. We were about a 45-minute set of a stage entertainment for a, a certain group of female professionals. And, and I remember playing the songs. We had singles, you know, Tequila Makes a Close Fall Off and Broken Hearts and stuff. And I said, I, I want to try this song out with you guys live and see what you think about it. And we played Who Are You and I'm Not Looking, just an acoustic version of it. And they went nuts. They went crazy for it because it was a very romantic, soft song. And it, it was kind of like, it's wanting to get to know her, and I think that's what women would love. So when I cut it, Brent Rowan, again, he did a fantastic job of making it very pretty. When we got out of the studio, I was like, man, that's going to really hit. That's going to really strike you know, a nerve with women. It's going to really, really hit with them. And uh, at the time, there was new leadership at the record label. Uh, we kind of didn't know each other a lot. There was you know, new promotion team. Um, that didn't have a history with me. And, and when I went in to, to tell them, like, hey, this is working. This will work. You got to put this out. This has got to be the first single. It really kind of hurt deeply to hear that not only did they not think that song was the hit, they didn't think my album <clears throat> at all had any hits on it. Wow. And I was just blown away by that. We started off on the wrong foot. <laughs> yeah. You know? I was just so kind of disappointed in that. But I happened to be working in the studio with uh, the president of the label at the time. You know, he was kind of in the camp of the promotion team and kind of was like, "Ah, I don't don't know if that's a hit. I don't know if we need to put that out. Let's go a different way. We put out a song called Another Side of You, which I think made it to like 16. It didn't do anything special. And we happened to still be working in the studio when Blake put that song out and it ran up the chart, big number one song for him. And I really did bring the chart into the studio with him when we were recording that day. And I gave it to the guy and I said, hey, look, you know, remember when you told me that this was not a hit? We need to go in a different direction. Well, this guy's got a big old freaking smash with this song mm-hmm. and cut it identically. <laughs> and went to the studio and actually said this, you know, in a few interviews. I listened to Joe's version of that song, thought it was a mistake that they didn't put it out. 
went into my producer and said, cut it exactly like this. We did. We put it out at a hit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, it's one of those moments. I wish we could have it back and can't do anything about it now, but it found its way to success. And, and I'm happy for Blake for recognizing you know, somebody else's mistake and saying, hey, I'll take that success if you don't want it. <laughs> my own mind is so good looking. Hold yourself together like a pair of bookings. But I've not tasted all your cooking. first moved to Nashville, I know you worked as a cable guy. Give me sort of the short version, because I know it certainly doesn't happen overnight. Whenever you arrive, what were some of the significant moments that led to the break? I try to think about that sometimes. Was there one moment or a couple of moments that happened that really meant, oh, here we go. And I think it was a slow build of a few things. Uh, when I had my day job of you know being a terrible cable guy, <laughs> but I was also writing for EMI, I was writing through the week, you know, when I could. And also I was taking a lot of work doing demos, you know, songs for publishers and songwriters that I knew. And uh, while I was doing this, I was kind of building a reputation a little bit among songwriters and creating this, a little bit of a buzz. Like, man, this guy is doing some, some cool stuff in the studio. And I was playing at uh, a little bar downtown called Rippy's. And I was learning how to play live in front of people and getting better singing. There was just kind of a slow build. You know, hey, this guy sings country, sings traditional. Nobody's really doing that right now. A lot of, like, Rascal Flats type records were, were working really well. And, and so, slowly, I started seeing these people coming to Rippy's to see us play live, like Tony Brown and, you know, some of these producers that I'm like, oh, wow, this, this is really cool. And before you know it, I started getting calls from A&R people. I was on Giant Records in 99 and 2000, and we didn't the eye to eye, and then they kind of let me go kind of explore other options in 2001-ish. And all of a sudden, when I was free of my record deal, I started having other people interested. Like, it became like four and five record labels, Sony and RCA and MCA. I think before I knew it, there were several competing offers, and they were competing with each other to get me on their label. And I think that's when I knew this is going to work because somebody's going to be so motivated, they're going to put everything into this. It's not just going to be about getting a record deal. It's about getting the right record deal. Yeah. And eventually I decided that the new label of Universal Style with two very iconic people in music, very successful people, Tony Brown and Tim Dubois, creating a label together. I thought, man, this could potentially be a flagship artist on this new creation of theirs uh, with Universal Distribution, I think could be a really really good opportunity and it was i realized this could be the big break Mm -hmm. you've been very very honest in the past about you know battles with addiction and you talked earlier about your wife heather being the sort of quality control when it comes to new music how important has she been Mm -hmm. in your life overall and obviously the three girls oh i tell her all the time if it wasn't for her i'd be dead and not just once but many times i wouldn't be here it's the number one most important thing to me if i don't have not just free of, you know, any kind of addiction. But if I don't have my mind spiritually connected with God, then I don't have anything. 
I think in the times that I've needed the most help, Heather's been the number one person that's not just helped me, but she and the girls have been uh, the one thing that I said, I don't want to lose, you know, so I'll do anything it takes to, to get my mind right, to get my body right, and to get sober, to be spiritually sober. Yeah, they were the number one factor in me just wanting to be healthy and live. I'll always be eternally grateful to her for not just being, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a hard ass <laughs> in a much needed way, but to be in love with somebody that much for it to matter, to want to live and, you know, have three girls that not only am I responsible for, but I just love deeper than anything I can imagine. That's truly what pulled me out of the fire, you know not wanting to lose them and not want to let them down. The Countryline Songwriter Series with Joe Nichols. More episodes from this series are available on the Countryline app and website or just search for the Countryline Songwriter Series wherever you normally get your podcasts.